I do have some packets left over from last week, uh, this Bible study that we have been uh, doing uh, for now several weeks. Um, I promise you we will take a break next week. Uh, but this has been something that I have personally thoroughly enjoyed just uh, diving in deep to and, and, and studying myself. Uh, if anyone was not here that did not get the Godhead Part 2 Bible study packet, uh, if you want to raise your hand right now, some of you might have brought it with you, some of you might not have. We definitely want anyone that uh, did not receive the Part 2 packet to get this packet. Uh, we could print more, but uh, my wife is passing those out right now. Um, as she passed those out, I do want to introduce you. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Trinitarian doctrine and, uh, uh, and, and just kind of the historical origin of that. That's kind of where we left off last week. Um, to start off with, I think I've got some images that I wanted to show you. Um, one of them is, a, is an equilateral triangle uh, that is, uh, is actually kind of universally known as a, a, a symbol representing uh, the Godhead uh, concept uh, in, a, in a Trinitarian way. And this is one of the depictions of it, uh, whereas in each corner of the triangle, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then the, the, the connecting lines is uh, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and vice versa. But essentially, this equilateral triangle uh, represents God, and God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, in terms such as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, or God the Holy Ghost. Um, but this, this is more of a modern rendition, but if you would look at, maybe I think this next picture uh, might show you uh, something in more of ancient uh, art or painting uh, of, of essentially uh, painters or artists trying their best to depict uh, what this Trinitarian idea concept of God is. This is a uh, kind of a three-faced uh, man uh, holding this triangle, and the triangle actually says exactly what we read in uh, the previous that was in English, and it's the same thing. Uh, let's see another picture. Uh, this picture uh, is actually depicting God what they would term as God the Father, as the old man on the right, uh, God the Son on the left, and of course we can't leave out the Holy Spirit, which is a, a bird, a dove in the middle. And so that's, that would be again an artist's best uh, rendering of this idea of the Trinitarian God. Go ahead and I think we might have one more picture. Is there another picture or was that it? Okay. I just wanted to start off with those because I think they will at least give you a visual of some of the things that we're going to talk about here um, in this Bible study. Last week, we left off, again, we left off on historical uh, references of the origin of the doctrine of the Trinity. And what I mean by that is essentially, and if you are following along with me, I'm on, I believe, page eight, if you have your packet, um, and what I'm I'm quoting are actually, uh, it's either going to be uh, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica or it's going to be uh, church historians. Uh, so those that are giving record of church history. Now, mind you that the historians themselves being Christian are Christians who believe that the God 
uh, that God does exist in three separate, co-eternal, co-equal um, uh, uh, persons, okay, separate persons. And one of the last that we read was the New Catholic Encyclopedia, and that's kind of the third, way, third one down on the packet. And the New Catholic Encyclopedia says this, the Trinity is not directly or immediately the Word of God. It goes on to say the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not taught in the Old Testament. Now the emphasis of each of these quotations is going to be this. Essentially, they are admitting that the Trinitarian doctrine is not founded, it's not found in the scriptures. Essentially, it came about later after the scriptures were written. The New Encyclopedia Britannica says this, neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament. In fact, you could go online uh, to Britannica online and you could search up the word Trinity and, and these are exact excerpts uh, that come straight from that. In, in an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, there is an English theologian, scholar, and poet uh, who initially he started out as an Anglican priest, uh, but then later converted and became a Catholic priest and later a cardinal uh, to the Pope. His name was John Henry Newman. He lived from 1801 to 1890 in the United Kingdom. He says this, let us allow the whole circle of doctrines or our teachings or beliefs of which our Lord is a subject which uh, was consistently and uniformly confessed by the primitive church. Everyone say primitive. Okay, John, John Henry Newman, what he was trying to express when he was giving a history of how Christian teachings had developed over the years, he's trying to express that the primitive church, which he is referring to the one that we read about in the book of Acts. He is saying that apostolic church or the church of the apostles, Peter, James, John, the apostle Paul, they were primitive. And what he was implying, and I said this at the end of the Bible study last week, what he was implying is that their understanding was very base. It was not yet developed. Okay, so essentially the original church, uh, the church of the first century, was a primitive or unlearned church. And then it took hundreds of years to develop clearly the form of doctrine that we have today. He goes on to say, but it surely is otherwise with the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. Essentially saying that the Catholic teaching of the Trinity is far more developed than what the primitive church or the church you find and read about in the book of Acts had at that time. The Catholic Encyclopedia says, in scripture there is as yet no single term by which the three divine persons are denoted together. The word trios, of which the Latin trinitas is a translation, is first found in Theophilus of Antioch about 180 AD. Again, kind of circle that date. That's 180 years after the birth of Christ. Uh, most would say that the last of the eyewitness apostles, which would have been John, who wrote the book of Revelation, died somewhere about 100 AD. So this is another 80 years after him. Uh, they first came about with this Trinity word. Uh, and it shortly after appears in Latin form by, as Trinitas by Tertullian. In the book, The Triune God by Edmund Fortman, uh, who was a Jesuit, this is a, uh, a sect of the Catholic Church, a Jesuit, 
Uh, he lived from 1901 to 1990. He said this, the Old Testament tells us nothing explicitly or by necessary implication. What he's saying is it, it doesn't come out and say it clearly, and he is admitting that it's not even implied in the Old, Old Testament. There's not even a hint of the triune God as Father, Son, and Spirit in the Old Testament. There's no evidence that any sacred writer even suspected the existence of a trinity within the Godhead. Even to see the Old Testament uh, suggestions or foreshadowings or veiled signs of trinity, of the trinity of persons, is to go beyond the words and intent of the sacred writers. He says, and listen, this book, The Triune God, is a notable book that essentially... Uh, discusses at length how the Trinitarian concept came about. It's used uh, by Trinitarians at large to this day. It's a, it's a big, big deal. And he, what he's saying is you cannot accurately look at the Old Testament and say, well, this was foreshadowing the Trinity. Now, what would that include? That would include uh, scriptures like in Genesis chapter 1, where it says that God uh, said, let us make man in our image. What, what this Trinitarian is saying is that language was not even implying a trinity of persons in the Godhead. And then he goes on to say the New Testament writers give us no formula or formulated doctrine of the trinity. No explicit teaching that in one God there are three co-equal divine persons. Nowhere do we find any Trinitarian teaching or doctrine of three distinct persons of divine life and activity in the same Godhead. It goes on to say Paul has no formal Trinitarian doctrine, so he's, he's referring to the epistles or the letters written by Paul, and no clear-cut realization of a Trinitarian problem. There is no Trinitarian doctrine in the Gospels or Acts. Nowhere do we find any Trinitarian doctrine of three distinct subjects of divine life and activity in the same Godhead. Now again, how, how is this even possible? How is someone that is a strong proponent or uh, propagator of Trinitarian doctrine, how are they allowed to say those kind of things and still, like, what basis do they then use in support of teaching that God exists in three persons? And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, a, a book that was published in 1966 called The Short History of Christian Doctrine, and, and basically it's a single uh, volume history of Christian doctrine that's actually used in seminaries to this day uh, that's written by Bernard Lowe's. He says, as far as the New Testament is concerned, one does not find it in actual, uh, an actual doctrine of the Trinity. Again, this all sounds redundant, but I think it's important to note this is not just, we didn't just kind of find a Trinitarian that says this and run with one. This is across the board, across the board. Um, in fact, I was, I was watching today, I was watching a Trinitarian professor from Oxford University describe how the Trinitarian doctrine came about. And he was saying all of these things. And one of the things that he said was the difference between those who uh, basically defined the Trinity in the 300s, 400s, 500s, the difference between them and us today uh, as Trinitarians, is that Trinitarians today basically admit that the Trinity does not come from the Bible. It comes from uh, man-made creeds that were written in the 300s, 400s, and 500s. 
And essentially he says he, he would uh, propose that those early church fathers in the 300s and 400s that wrote those man-made creeds, they would say that basically they're using scriptural basis for their doctrine. But again, we're going to get to that. Now, there was um, a man, he, he was an ordained uh, Anglican, and uh, he lived from 1929 to even as recent as 2017. His name's Tom uh, Harper, and he actually was someone that pr promoted what's called the Christ myth theory. And Tom Harper, this Canadian Anglican priest, uh, he basically would say that Christ was actually fictional. He's a fictional character, but uh, they use this fictional character to teach us good values and morals. Okay, so he's a fictional character, teach us good values and morals. But in his book called For Christ's Sake, so essentially he's, he's arguing against what's wrong with the Christian church. And when he says Christian church, he's implying that all Christians are Trinitarians. He says, what is most embarrassing for the Trinitarian church is the difficulty of proving any of these statements of dogma of the Trinity from the New Testament documents. He says that's embarrassing, that the church can't even prove the Trinity from the New Testament. He goes on to say, you simply cannot find the doctrine of the Trinity set out anywhere in the Bible. This research has led me to believe that the great majority of regular churchgoers, for all practical purposes, are actually tritheists. That is, they profess to believe, they believe that there's only one God, but in reality, they are worshiping three gods. Is what, in his opinion, when he looks at the church, he was basically diagnosing all of its problems. Because he's, he's somehow come to this like higher understanding that Christ was actually a fictional character. But when he looks at the church, he says one of the problems is this. They can't support the Trinitarian doctrine. And he says, essentially, what Christians are, are worshiping three gods. The next page, the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics says this. At, the first, at first, the Christian faith was not Trinitarian. Correct. <laughs> It was not so in the apostolic or sub-apostolic ages as reflected in the New Testament of the early Christian writings. He's saying during the first hundred years, the first 200 years, almost the first 300 years, the apostolic and therefore sub-apostolic eras, he says it was not known. Or they say. Another book called The Three-Person God, that sounds interesting, The Three-Person God, uh, this was published by the Catholic University of America Press in 1988. It says this, the New Testament itself is far from any doctrine of the Trinity or of a triune God who is three co-equal persons of one nature. Um, when you look up this book on Amazon, they have it for sale. This, the description of that book is this. In the first part of the book, the author examines the New Testament matrix of an emerging Trinitarianism, the shaping of the tradition by the Greek fathers, and the systemization of the doctrine in Augustine and medieval scholasticism. That's, that's a mouthful, right? Basically, what, what the description of the book is, is the first part of the book is how, <laughs> how you got the New Testament to somehow come together uh, with the Greek believers and essentially systematic uh, how they define the Trinity. And he tried to explain how those merged together. The Encyclopedia International says the doctrine of the Trinity did not form a part of the apostles' preaching as this would have been reported in the New Testament. 
if, if, if it came from the apostles, you would have found it in the New Testament. I'll explain more about that in a little bit. The Trinity in its final form is a product of many factors, they confess. The Christian doctrine of God by Emil Bruner, um, this is the most widely uh, respected and read theologian in the English-speaking world uh, throughout the 1900s. He was a professor of systematic and practical theology at, uh, at Zurich, at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. He said this, we must honestly admit that the doctrine of the Trinity did not form part of the early Christian New Testament message. Certainly it cannot be denied that not only the word Trinity, but even the explicit idea of the Trinity is absent from the apostolic witness of the faith. The doctrine of the Trinity itself, however, is not a biblical doctrine. Again, over and over and over again. This last quote comes from uh, E. Washburn Hopkins, who is not, so this is the one site that was not a Christian. This guy's not a Christian. He actually tried to tear down anyone's belief in the Bible or the church. And uh, he, he was actually a scholar of essentially literary texts. He would study how texts came about and if they're valid or not, if they're actually real, these ancient texts. And he said this, to Jesus and Paul, the doctrine of the Trinity was apparently never known. They say nothing about it. So if, if all of these church historians are admitting that it did not come from the Bible, then where did Trinitarian doctrine come from? In uh, both the biblical and historical records, uh, they're revealing this, then where did, it, where did it come from if it wasn't with the first church? Well, Jesus and his apostles warn in their lifetimes that there was false teachers. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving wolves. He, so Jesus, in his lifetime, while he was still yet alive, he says, Beware, there are false prophets. There's false teachers. Then the apostle Paul, he writes, and he specifically says you got to be careful with individuals that will distort or pervert the doctrine of the Godhead. He writes this for us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says, beware lest any man spoil you. Now, I know I've used that word spoil before to talk about like a spoiled child. It's ruined or spoiled milk. It stinks, right? But, but the word usage actually here is, is referring to like if an army would take a city, and conquer a city, the plunder would be called the spoils of war. The prisoners would be included in the spoils of war. So what the Apostle Paul was saying is be careful lest anyone lead you away astray or lead you away captive through philosophy and vain deceit, through the tradition of men, after the rudiments or the thinking of the world and not after Christ. And then he goes on to make the record clear. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Paul explicitly warns against being led astray as captive to philosophies and to the thinking of this world. And then he emphasizes that all the fullness of the Godhead, which is a triple 
basically a triple emphasis. It's kind of like if you wanted to emphasize that God was holy, the scriptures say holy, holy, holy. There's no exclamation marks or all caps in the, in the Greek of the Bible. Okay, now I know some of you, you love all caps or you love your explanation marks. And anyone that texts me with like three explanation marks, I'm like, why are you yelling at me? So there's, there's, there's no all caps or explanation marks. So what, what the writers in the Greek language would do for emphasis, instead of using exclamation marks or, or, or all caps, they would say it three times or multiple times or even twice. Jesus would say, verily, verily, truly, truly, pay attention, pay attention. And to emphasize that Christ, that all of the Godhead dwelt in Christ, first of all, he could have said the Godhead dwells in Christ. And that would have been really all-inclusive. But he didn't just say the Godhead, as though you could split up the Godhead. He didn't just say the Godhead. He said all the Godhead. So the totality of all that is God dwelt in Christ. But he didn't just stop there. He said all the fullness of the Godhead. So as to imply that there was no part or pie or sliver of God that was not invested in the man, Christ Jesus. During and after the time of the New Testament, Greek thought and philosophy was accepted and popular among the nations of the Middle East. The Greek culture of the time was noted for its grandiose philosophies and never-ending search of truth. Um, a lot of, even if you were to go to college today and study philosophy, your base, your foundation would be in Greek philosophy uh, with great Greek minds. Uh, we know that the time of the writing in the New Testament was during the Roman Empire. But before the Roman Empire was the Greek Empire. One of the most notable Greek leaders was Alexander the Great. So he existed during that period of silence of 400 years between the Old and New Testament. And during that time were great philosophers or great minds like that of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. And these individuals, basically their teachings became known all throughout the, the empire, the Greek empire, but after Greek was toppled, Rome. So you have what is called the Greco-Roman empire, where you have the merging of these ideas, of the arts, of the philosophies of both Rome, which was pagan, believed in multiplicity, or the pantheon of gods, but also the Greek gods. And you see kind of a merging together of these things. But notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, through 24. For the Jews require a sign. Paul is writing to the, Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth. And he says, and the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. They want to know what sounds wise what sounds intellectual, but we preach Christ crucified. And because we preach the simplicity of Christ being crucified as our savior, to the Jews it was a stumbling block, because that can't be, and then to the Greeks it was foolishness. That, that's absurd. How would someone win by losing? And uh, so it, it, it blew the minds of the Greco-Romans. It blew their minds because they, they saw as basically the pinnacle uh, of, of humanity would be either uh, seen in power, authority, the Romans, or in philosophy and wisdom and intellect, the Greeks. You, you read about in Acts chapter 17, Paul was found in Athens, Athens, Greece. And he stood there on Mars Hill. And he surveyed all these statutes that they made uh, to the gods, 
the Greek gods or the Roman gods. And then he began to proclaim to them the unknown God, the God of the Old Testament. But, but still, nonetheless, that was the culture that they lived in. They lived in this Greek uh, infested or permeated thought of culture. According to the historical record, which we're now going to get into, the doctrine of the Trinity has its roots in Greek philosophy that was prevalent during the time of the first church, most notably the philosophies that had been originated by Plato, one of Greece's most famous philosophers. So what I'm going to read now, it comes from sim simply the, the church of the first three centuries. This is written by Alvin Lamesom. Uh, that wrote it in the 1800s, 1860 to be exact. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity was of gradual and comparatively late formation. It had its origin in a source entirely foreign from that of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. It grew up and was engrafted on Christianity through the hands of Platonizing fathers. What he says, it, the way it came in was through the teaching of Plato that was continuing to be perpetuated. In, in a book called Christianity or the Church's Debt to Heretics, it says this, the doctrine of the Trinity was not a first century argument, but it was a fourth century argument, which means that it was during the 300s. So during the 300s, that's when it was argued, and Trinitarians, Trinitarianism did not proceed from Orthodox Christianity or from primitive or ancient Christianity, but from unbelievers. The Trinity philosophy came from a struggle that predated Christianity in Alexandria, Egypt, between the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle. These two philosophies speculated on the nature of divine beings. Plato was one of the most creative and influential thinkers in Western philosophy. He was born in Athens, Greece in 428 or 427 BC before Christ. He was a student of Socrates for eight years. Plato's influence on Western philosophy has called unmatched and monumental. One of Plato's most celebrated writings was his infamous Timaeus. You could, you could Google it. It was a writing of his called Timaeus in which he postulated the idea that there were three entities that exist in the intelligible world. Again, keep in mind that wisdom was God to the Greeks, you know, to the thoughts, to the philosophers. To demonstrate his philosophy, Plato created, guess what he created to, to kind of example what this is? He created the equilateral triangle as a representation of the three entities. And the points of the triangle, he placed the names Nos, Mino, and Phaedo. Approximately 800 years later, in 205 AD, there was another philosopher. He was called Plotinus. Plotinus was born in Lycopolis in Upper Egypt. So he became the founder of what's known as Neoplatonism. And basically, he took the teachings of Plato and re-energized them and really started preaching them or teaching them at large. But he was also rooted in... Uh, from, from Upper Egypt, he was rooted in Egyptian mysticism. In short, the Neoplatonist uh, philosophy stated that there were three entities in the world. There was the divine mind, God, which was the creator of the universe. Then there was the demiurge, or a smaller God, which came out of the bigger God, which in turn generated the world soul or the spirit. It is important to remember that this philosophy had zero, had nothing to do with the inspired scripture. 
Neoplatonism was based solely on paganistic human thinking. It was a mixture of Platonic philosophy and Egyptian mysticism. In fact, I was doing research on, the, uh, on these three entities, one of them being the Demiurge, and uh, even uh, those terms, uh, nous, N-O-U-S, and it comes from Egyptian paganism, which believes in the god uh, Re, R-E or R-A-H, Ra, uh, which would be the sun god. And above his head would be the sun uh, that's wrapped around with, with a cobra snake. Plotinus, having been born in Egypt, was well-versed in Egyptian mysticism. And his philosophy of Neoplatonism was influenced by both the Egyptian idea of trinity of gods as well as Platonic uh, philosophy. The Egyptian gods were father, mother, son, Osiris, Isis, and Horus. In the New Universal Dictionary, the Platonic trinity itself, merely a rearrangement of older trinities dating back to early peoples, appear to be the rationale, philosophic trinity of attributes that give birth to the three hypostases, uh, again, this is kind of a big term when it came to the Nicene Creed, of divine persons taught by the Christian churches. This Greek philosopher's conception of the divine trinity can be found in all the ancient pagan religions. Let me hurry on. I'm, I'm going to skip ahead, and I'm going to go um, to the quote that's on the next page, The Story of Civilization, Caesar and Christ, by Will, uh, by Will Durant. He says this, from Egypt came the idea of the divine trinity. And he says this, Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. From his perspective, this is not a, this is not a, um, comes from a, a Christian or faith-based perspective. What he is saying is he's just studying religions at large. He's saying the Christians just revamped and relabeled ancient trinities from pagan religion. Unfortunately, when Neoplatonism uh, became prominent, Christianity was almost 300, that's your next blank, 300 years old. And stagnation and apostasy had already begun to take the place of it. The popularity of Neoplatonism exerted a profound influence on the church leaders. They began to be spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit. The doctrine of the Lego, uh, Logos in New Chef Herzog Encyclopedia of Re, uh, Religious Knowledge says the doctrine of the Logos and the Trinity received their shape from Greek fathers who were much influenced directly or indirectly by Platonic philosophy. That errors and corruption crept into the church from the source and it cannot be denied. Again, you have multiple here. So how did, it, how did it become a part of the church? There was an individual by the name of Tertullian, and there's multiple individuals named Tertullian throughout early church history, but this one, who lived from 150 to 225 AD, was one of the first Roman church fathers to use the word trinitas, which is a Latin word for trinity. The term trinity was originated by Tertullian, according to New International Encyclopedia, a Roman Catholic church father. According to Tertullian's own writings, he adopted the triangle of Plato's Timaeus and changed the names to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. By his own admission and most Christians of Tertullian's times, they rejected his idea of Trinity on two grounds. Basically, when he first started bringing this to the forefront of the church, they rejected it. Number one, because they thought it was polytheism, belief that there were multiple gods. Or number two, is they divided the unity of the Godhead. 
Tertullian's doctrine of the Trinity was taken up and further developed by other men such as Origen and St. Augustine, causing a fierce disagreement of Christian believers. Um, I've got, <laughs> through the week, I've gotten deep into the weeds of this, and it's a little jumbled up in my mind, but it is, it is truly incredible. Um, what I'm, what I'm going to basically uh, summarize in this next portion is basically Roman, the Roman Empire Constantine. Okay, he was a Roman emperor, rather. He ruled, and in 312 A.D., he was facing civil war within his empire, and it was with uh, another contemporary of his. And when he was at this battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312, he claims to have had this vision. And in this vision, the, there was a light in the sky, and there was a symbol of a cross, and then there was the words, in this sign, you will conquer. In this sign, you will conquer. And from that point on, all of a sudden, the cross became a symbol to conquering, a symbol of violence, where they decimated many thousands of lives. Constantine was not a Christian, but Constantine was a Roman emperor. He had a problem because no matter how much, up to this time, no matter how much they tried to kill Christians, it seemed like they just multiplied and became bigger and bigger and bigger. There were more and more Christians. It reminds me of uh, Egypt, right? In the Old Testament, Pharaoh tried to kill the Israelites, and it seemed like the harder he tried to work them or kill them, the more they multiplied. Well, that, that's what was happening. So what Constantine did is he saw an opportunity. If I convert to Christianity, claim to have had this vision which led to my victory, and I allow Christianity to be accepted in the Roman Empire, then I will have a voice with them and I will have their favor. He's a politician. He wants votes. He wants peace in his borders. And so he basically, in 325 AD, he called the Council of Nicaea together. Um, some estimates say that there was over a thousand church leaders that came together. The, the meeting was what would be called ecumenical. Ecumenical meaning that they, he wanted to take all of the church leaders um, and unify them according to what they believed. He wanted Christianity to become the state religion. He wanted to take ownership of Christianity. Now at that time, they had a battle on their hands because there was, um, uh, I think it's, it, it would be called uh, an Aryan movement basically that said that God, there was God and then he created Jesus, but he was less than God. Uh, this would be, if you meet a Jehovah's Witness, this would be very similar to what they would teach you, okay? That there was this divine being, but he created kind of a demigod. Um, and so they had this kind of floating about in the church, so they came about and they, they had this man-made creed in 325 AD. And as I mentioned last week, the problem with the creed that was made at Nicaea was that it left out the Holy Ghost. In fact, when I was listening to the Oxford pro professor uh, today, who's a Trinitarian, he said that the reason they met again in 381 and 375 was because uh, they realized that they didn't mention anything about the Holy Spirit. And so the 381 adopted that, 
And from that point on, anyone that believed any, any different was excommunicated or ostracized or even put to death by the state or by the government or by the church that now had the power of the government. One of the biggest proponents was someone that was in the church. His name was Eusebius, and Eusebius was not exactly liked by everyone in the church. But Eusebius somehow found favor with Constantine. And so they partnered together. Can you guess who wrote Constantine's eulogy? It was Eusebius. And in his report of Constantine, he wrote about this vision that Constantine had of the cross. What's interesting is there's an arc that stands, an arch rather, an arch that stands to the memory of Constantine to this day and the battle of Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. And on that arch is the goddess Diana, the god, uh, the god Apollo, the goddess Victoria, the god Hercules or the demigod. All of them are on this arch. Can you guess what's not on the arch? Not one cross, not one Christian thing. Uh, somehow depicted on this arch, right? Still, you still see it, you Google it. Um, but yet at the dedication of this arch that was to basically celebrate the victory that he had at this bridge in, in Milvian, he claims to have seen this, this cross. Constantine supposedly converted to Christianity, but he waited to be baptized until right before he died. So that way he could kill his family members like he did, and he could do all sorts of sinful things. And then right before he died, he could be baptized to take care and absolve all his sins. This is essentially the root of how the Trinitarian concept became such a large part of the church today. It came from paganism. It came from a Roman emperor that wanted unity in his, in his kingdom and, you, and saw it as a potential unifier to have these things where you had this mergence of, uh, of Greek philosophy, Egyptian mysticism, and then Christianity. However, champions of the original doctrine of the oneness of God have existed throughout history, braving persecution and even death itself. Here's a few individuals. Uh, Megiddus, uh, <laughs> was condemned to death for his oneness beliefs around 782. Peter Abelard of France was condemned in, 12th, in the 12th century of the 1100s. Almoric of Bina in 1400. Michael Servetus, who was a brilliant Spaniard, who was the first to discover the pulmonary circulation of the blood that still is uh, used in medicine today, was burned at the stake in 1553 with acid being poured on the top of his head for his oneness belief. He said this, I find no separation in the one God. There's no separation between Christ and God. He and the Father are one as the ray and the sun are one light. For he was a, for who was of one time the hidden God of Israel now is made manifest, and this is the appearance of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God is his spirit that fills all men. Basically, he defined exactly what the Bible says. This is what we believe. There's another uh, individual, Julius, who when he uh, was killed, they tied a millstone around his leg and threw him into the water. And as he sank, he cried out, Jesus is my God. Sir Isaac Newton 
who invented the theory of gra uh, gra gravity and acclaimed as the greatest scientist of all time, wrote a manuscript entitled A Historical Account of Two Notable Corruptions of Scripture. And in that, he was very hostile against the idea of the Trinity. One last one, William Penn. Um, he was the founder of the state of Pennsylvania. He was a Quaker. He was imprisoned in England in 1668 for writing a tract entitled The Sandy Foundation Shaken. Basically, he attacked anything that was in the church that did not have scriptural support. And listen carefully to what he said. William Penn said this, If God, as the scriptures testify, hath never been declared or believed, but as the Holy One, then will it follow that God is not a holy three, nor doth subsist in three distinct and separate persons, but he is a holy one, just like scripture teaches. The Bible tells us in Jude that we ought to contend for the faith which was once originally delivered unto the saints. And that is where we stand today as one God believers. We are contending for the faith that was delivered to the saints of the first century by the apostles. What I did not get to tonight and don't have time to is I would love, and, and I'll do this in the future, I would love to talk to you about um, if the baptism of Jesus is evidence of the Trinity. Uh, this is a question that's common, and it's a great question. Jesus was baptized. We know that there is a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And there is the Holy Spirit that descends and lights upon him in the shape of a dove. Is this evidence of a Trinity? Another one that's a great question is at, at Stephen's martyr, uh, when Stephen was killed, stoned to death, and when he saw uh, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Is that evidence of multiple persons in the Trinity? Um, I don't have time to, to get into all of that yet, so it's just kind of a cliffhanger for you. I will, I will talk about it in the future. I think, um, suffice it to, well, no, I'm not even going to get into it because, because I, I won't do it justice. But uh, I, love, I, love, I love studying the things that I've been taught growing up, I grew up uh, believing that there's one God, believing that Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh. But you know, Brother Walker, I came to a point in my life that I don't want to just believe something because I was told it. I, I want to study it out for myself. I want to, I want to, I want to be able to look. In fact, right now, I feel so bold. I could sit down with any pastor or individual in the Quad Cities and talk about the Godhead and talk about its origin and talk about scriptures with them because the Bible simply supports that there is one God who is manifest in flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, and received up into glory that we serve one God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to talk about persons in the Godhead, there's only one person, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Why don't we stand together? Thank you, Jesus. I want us to pray. And I guess in closing, I will say this. I feel confident when I pray who I'm praying to. Um, I find it uh, a subject of confusion if I believe that there were three persons in the Godhead. You know, I don't want one of them to feel left out in my prayers. 
Uh, even worse yet would be if I believed that I had to pray to a saint or pray to uh, Queen Mary, um, the Queen of Heaven, as they would call her. Um, I don't think I showed you. There was another picture depicting the Trinity, and it was the Trinity, three persons that looked exactly the same, and they were all holding a crown. And, and guess who they were crowning? Mary. How, how did the church, well, we kind of read a little bit about it. It came because essentially people with lesser conviction adopted things because of popularity, because of politics, and they voided scripture by their traditions. We have quite a task on our hand, hands. We have truth, and I believe that it's imperative that we share it. I believe that it's imperative that we share it. You say, well, is all of this really important? You know, does it matter? I do. I believe it, it absolutely matters if it's the greatest commandment as spoken by Jesus. And secondly, even if he didn't say it, why else would people that wanted to pr uh, promote the Trinitarian idea would burn Michael Servetus alive and kill many others just like him? Why would the Church of England ostracize William Penn and put him in prison because he wrote something that was biblical? Because they view it as extremely important. Amen. If it's important to them, it should be important to us. And I believe we ought to share this wonderful truth. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this Bible study. It was an extensive Bible study. And Lord, I, I feel, Lord, as, as much attention as we given to it, have given to it, I feel like I still have not done it justice, even by the way I've presented it. But I pray nonetheless that your spirit of truth would lead and guide all of us into all truth, that we would have the beautiful revelation of the mighty God who was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would touch each of the Refuge Church members, that we would be a light of that great light whom is God revealed in Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, that we will share truth wherever we go. I don't believe that we need to be arrogant in our faith. I don't believe that we need to be argumentative in our faith. But I do believe, Lord, that we need to let people know that there is one God. This is why we must be baptized in the name that was revealed as the only name by which we can be saved, the name of Jesus. I pray, oh Lord, that as we see the beauty of the oneness of God and the mighty God that was in Christ, Lord, the crucifixion becomes more beautiful. The work of redemption becomes more glorious because it wasn't one person in the Godhead sending down another person in the Godhead. No, but it was God himself that took upon himself the form of a servant. Glory be unto God. And I'm so thankful to know the name of the Lord, that name that's above every name, that name at every knee shall bow to and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, Lord God. Praise your holy name, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for being such great students and uh, listeners, uh, or at least just sitting there quietly while I spoke. <laughs> God bless you. In Jesus' name, you are dismissed. Amen. Remember